Well, if you would, let's let's work our way back to Romans and then chapter four this morning. And if you've got a bookmark handy, we're going to be looking here at Romans chapter 4, and then uh, Genesis 12 would be another good spot for you to put your your bookmark. We'll be looking at a few references there in, uh, in the book of Genesis. One of the... One of the difficulties that, that men have in, in our day and age in the Christian faith, and, and I, I think it's probably been from the very beginning, is that re- regarding faith, saving faith and salvation, and, and, and a man's or a woman's, our, our understanding the relationship between faith and works is, is not easy to thoroughly understand. Fallen men get self-justification. We spent just a little bit of time working on that last week and in the weeks before. Self-justification is is a man meeting the requirements of either God's law or of man's law of works. We 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 perform those deeds and, and those works and and feel uh, we have some grounds of self-justification and that is true because there there is a law at work on the heart of men, and and men march to the the beat of this law. We we meet its requirements, and and in a sense, in a sense, the law of works is effective in what it is meant to do. The the law of works shouldn't be something that we look down on. Um, However, however good it is, and, and we could say it's perfect if you know it perfectly, it's perfectly capable of revealing right and wrong. The, the, the law of works is a revealer. And so it does this very well. We think, we get the sense that it gives a compliment to right. When you do right, we get the sense that the law has said, boy, good job. We, man's natural inclination is to have that kind of relationship to the law. It can pat you on the back or it can scold you. And so it seems to compliment right and noble. And it seems to chide or correct wrong and selfish. The law of works discerns light and dark. Or by it, we can make these discernings and we can see the difference between good and evil. And, and, and all men understand this rule. We did touch on the fact that, that the Jewish man under the law of Moses is going to view this more strictly and under a different law light than a pagan or a Gentile. A pagan or a Gentile is going to kind of bring his own law light to bear on the subject. But there is this law, and it does what it does well. But what is less easy to understand, and, and, and it's almost impossible to understand, although I do think that there are some men who think deeply on this, they eventually get it, but man's service to the law cannot save him. 
the the right thinking Jew knew this, of course. The the, the right thinking pagan will understand this. The law is never going to give a person a verdict of of innocent. It's never going to announce, okay, you are perfectly righteous. Romans 3.20, you'll remember, have a look at that there. It's probably right there in your Bible if you're at Romans 4. But 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. It's just a law. It's just a law. And, and, and deeply thinking, honest men, pondering the law and, and its work will know this. We will know. It's, it's never going to find me perfectly innocent. It, it, it may, I may feel I've, I've done something well, but by it, and here is its real purpose, by it is the knowledge of sin. By the work of the law is the knowledge of sin. It's supposed to help men know how they fall short. It's supposed to help you know how you fall short. It's supposed to help you be able to recognize what is in righteous in you. Why why should you be able to recognize? Why should you be able to know? Why would you want to know if you're unrighteous? Well, you need to know because only the unrighteous are going to seek God for righteousness, right? Only the unrighteous are going to seek God for help. The self-righteous man is never going to feel any need. He's never going to want any solace or any any true healing and fixing from the Lord. And this is the wonder of the gospel. Men can have, and, and we've read now, we've read how it is that men can have the righteousness required by God apart from the deeds of the law. This is the miracle of the gospel. God's righteousness can be yours apart from the deeds of the law. And this is an an astonishing reality of the gospel. The law of faith in Christ is, is the way away from the condemnation of the law of works. The law of faith in Christ will take the death of Christ and credit it to you so you don't have to give your own death. The law of faith in Christ will take the righteousness of Christ and credit it to you who have truly put your faith and hope in Christ. It's an amazing thing. The law of works is respected. I think this is the right word. It's respected by the law of faith. We touched on this last week. In other words, the law of faith doesn't take the law, the deeds of the law, doesn't take the law and throw it in the garbage can. The law of faith actually acknowledges the rightness of the law of works. We don't make void the law by holding on to the law of faith, in other words. That was what was addressed in the last verse of chapter 3. Look at verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? And then what does your Bible say there? Mine uses the word certainly. Is that what yours says? Certainly not. Absolutely not. No way. Men are very, very tempted for hundreds of years. Upon your light grasp, of the law of faith 
to take that nasty law and put it in the garbage can. And and it has been a issue for believing people to take this strange stand against the law, even though it says in black and white there, my Bible's got a white page in black letters. No. Certainly not. May it never be. And it's mentioned again in the in the Gospel of Romans. The law verdict of guilty is perfectly respected in the realm of the law of faith, isn't it? The law of faith doesn't cheat God's justice. It doesn't close its eyes to man's sin. And in order that you and I would deepen our understanding of of how the law of faith truly works and what is the relationship of a person's deeds to faith. Romans chapter 4 brings us this illustration or this picture of the life of Abraham and we are going to contemplate justification and Abraham. Justification and Abraham is the main subject here. So chapter 4, verse 1 begins, and, and I was inclined to think, as I started getting ready for teaching this, you might have thought you were done thinking about justification and faith when we finished chapter 3. You'd be like, okay, let's go on to the next subject. All of Romans chapter 4 is going to be speaking on this subject of Abraham and justification and faith. If you look at verse 1, chapter 4, he says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Why is he even asking this question? Why does he begin chapter 4 with this question? about Abraham and, and what he has found or, or, or what he has accomplished, what has he discovered regarding the flesh? Why does this involve Abraham in particular? Now this at first didn't catch my attention. This at first wasn't really on my mind, but the more I studied this, the, the more I realized that Abraham... And then this issue of the righteousness that God requires give us foundational, true Christian doctrine in in one package. Abraham is a, a, a person in the history of God's people that we as non Jews, you you will never understand unless you take some time to study who Abraham is and why he is such a central figure in the scripture and in the history of the people of God. And the scripture says that righteousness is credited to man by faith. When when we began contemplating that in Romans 1 and 2 and 3, righteousness is credited, counted to a person by faith. He may say or think something along the lines of, well, I believe that. That sounds good. I'm in. 
I like that. I believe in Jesus. At that point in a person's contemplating of the gospel, when 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 you maybe initially you said, Yeah, I believe that, and you really believe you believe that. You might not be sure what belief is. This is a tricky thing with the gospel. What is faith? What does faith actually mean? Is the thing you have in your head about Jesus the kind of faith that Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4 is talking about? Is your faith the kind of faith that binds you to the Lord Jesus with the reward of eternal life? And this examination of Abraham and what biblical faith is, is a really good answer to this question. It's a really, really insightful answer to this question. The Spirit, the Spirit knows you and I have some kind of internalized understanding of what we think faith means. But the gospel immediately goes here in Romans chapter 4, asking this question in verse 1, what then shall we say our father Abraham is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, remember the word justified is in a sense the same as the word righteous. If he was made righteous by faith and by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say in verse 3? Quote, Abraham believed God and it was credited or accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, for one, for some people, is 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 a, a very riveting. It's a, it, it gets your attention. It grabs your attention because of Abraham being here. After you think about this for a little while, I think you'll agree with me that Abraham is one of the most important figures in the history of the world. Abraham is one of the most significant people in the history of the world. Let me tell you particularly what what, what I'm meaning by this. His name shows up in the Old Testament almost 120 times. Constant reference made to Abraham's name. In the New Testament, his, his name is mentioned over 70 times. Those numbers don't matter. Those statistics aren't, aren't, aren't crucial. But you're used to seeing his name, aren't you? you you've heard of Abraham since, since VBS, since your first few weeks in church probably. You've heard the, the name of Abraham. Book of Matthew opens, Matthew 1, 1 and 2 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you have some idea as to why Abraham's name is there in the opening lines of the book of Matthew. Matthew 1, 2 said, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. What is the significance of Abraham, though? Why is it that he is so predominant? in particular in Jewish history. And then you as a Christian, if you are a believing Christian, you have joined believing Jews, and we are indeed a people. We're the people. 
of God. What is Abraham's significance in your mind, in your life as the people of God? We need to study this question because honestly, as Gentile Christians, we don't get it. We don't really, really understand the significance of him and, and what justification by faith means coming through or uh, you know, by this picture in Abraham. He is the man. Abraham is the person through whom has come the revelation of God's covenant promise to men. Now that's a huge state. But Abraham is the reason there is a thing called the Abrahamic covenant. And we're going to read bits of it here in a minute. But this is the key covenant by which you and I understand, even in a general way, what is God's intention for men in offering his kindness to them. If you don't have Abraham, you don't have an Abrahamic covenant. You don't understand that. He is crucial for understanding promises that have to do with salvation. If you don't have Abraham, we don't have these promises. The significance of Christ showing up in that story just has no connections. Abraham is the key to us understanding what salvation is in the history of the world. Before known time is when Genesis starts. We don't know what year God was hovering over the darkness. But we get God speaking the creation into existence, Genesis 1 and 2. We get Adam being created. And then by Genesis 5, we're given the genealogies of Adam. The Bible very quickly begins to tell you and I about the very first man and woman and then their children and who are the people who populated the world. By the time we get up to the last children of Adam just before the flood, we're just under 1,700 years of world history. 1,700 years gets us from the creation to the last days leading up to the flood of planet Earth. Noah and his sons populate the Earth after the flood, and in Genesis chapter 11, Babel is built. Babel is, is like this, this picture of, of man's rebellion, this, this ultimate state of rebellion. The nations and the languages are confused of planet Earth in Genesis 11. Now look at Genesis 11, and we're going to look at verse 24. Genesis 11 from verse 24. And don't lose your bookmark there. We'll end up being back here. But Genesis 11 and 24 says, Nahor lived 29 years. He's one of the many in, in the line of, of Adam and his children. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. 
This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no children. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So this is the end of a list of all of the genealogies of all the men who had lived on earth and of the first cities of the world. So we've got creation to Adam and the flood, and then about another 225 years to the point of Abraham, and Abraham is right at about the 2,000 year mark in the history of the world. Right about the 2,000 year mark. Why is he identified? Why does the scripture hold him up to this point? Was he a virtuous man? Was he a mighty hero of war? Was, was he a great religious man? Interestingly, none of those things is true about him. He's not identified for his virtue or his holiness or his worship. He is known by his father. You know who his father is. He's in the, in the line of, of Adam. Basically, we know who his brothers are, we know who his nephew is, and we know the woman that he took to be a wife, who is barren. We're told that the, the man of no notability and no notoriety in the world has also got a, a wife who is unable to have children. So, so far, so good. Let's look now at Genesis 12. One to three. The Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is amazing. Jehovah God, as we have sometimes called him, as we sometimes know him, who's the creator of the stars and the planets and and of men, he speaks to Abram. He speaks directly to Abram here at Genesis chapter 12. Abram had been raised where? Where, where, What is Abram's geographical genealogy? Ur. Of the Chaldeans, which is Iraq. That's in Iraq. Or, I don't know if you know where the Persian Gulf is, but the, if you can close your eyes and see the Mediterranean Sea over here, which has Israel right up next to it, and I'm doing all this reverse for you, but the Persian Gulf is, is over here. So if I could do the, all this in a mirror, you know, it's here's the Persian Gulf, there's Ur, right up there at the top of the Persian Gulf. Abram is a a man in a large area of a pagan land. 
Why did God call Abram? He wanted to. Thank you. That was the right answer. He just chose him. He just called him. He just called him. God called him with a wife who couldn't bear children. Why? Why did God call this man who had a wife who couldn't have kids? Isn't that interesting? I mean, if I could say it without being too irreverent, Abram's a nobody and his wife is an, is an even worse nobody. They're, they're, they're nobodies. These questions about why call Abraham, why, why Sarai, why, why is she barren? These are important questions and, and, and we ought to visit them at some point. God calls them, and I think it would be fair to say that this call is a command. If you look back there at at, uh, Genesis chapter 12, um, it it wasn't a request, as in, would you please go and do such and such? It it was simply a command. Romans 4, don't lose Genesis, we'll be back there. Romans 4, 3. Romans 4, 3. If Abraham had something to boast about, he, he could boast, but not before God. Verse 3, what, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God. Paul's intention in bringing Abraham into Romans chapter 4 is to show you and I what justifying faith is. Men must know how to have justification, and we have been taught that justification is by faith in Christ. Now, very quickly here in chapter 4, we see that Abraham believed God, and this is credited to him as righteousness. Genesis chapter 12 is the place where you and I see the first instance, the first recorded instance of Abraham's believing with a faith that is credited to him as righteousness. This is the first place in the Bible where you can see what it means to believe God and be credited with righteousness. This is really key. This leaves very little room for your speculation about what faith is and about what saving faith is. So you really need to be paying attention to what is happening in the scripture here. Genesis 12, verse 1, there is a calling to Abram. Abram is told what? Leave your country. Leave. Leave your family. Leave your house to a land I will show you. What would it mean to have faith that is credited as righteousness? What does it mean for Abraham to believe God? Leave. Isn't that what it would mean? I believe you, God. I'm leaving. would mean to follow him away from the life of your non-God-believing country. Follow him, leaving your non-God-believing family, house, 
friends, career, leave it. Just leave is what he says. And Paul has taught us, God's Spirit has taught us that Abraham believed God. And this belief, this faith is credited to him as righteousness. Did he know where he was supposed to go? No. This actually was a perfect time to question that this we might have predicted him questioning God's power and God's authority and God's intentions. Abraham might have suggested any of those questions. You might have asked any of these questions. God gives this command that has many possible in question questions and has many Many areas of uncertainty. When when Abram knows what has just been requested of him, the, the things he doesn't know about what is in front of him is infinite. He knows diddly about what is in store for him tomorrow. However, you'll also notice in Genesis 12, let's get back there. 12.2 begins a list of what I, I'm pretty sure is seven promises. So there is an instruction of leaving, and now he has explained some promises that are associated with the command. Here's the promises. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There are seven promises given in that little list there. He's given an instruction, or we could simply call it a command, and he's given these promises. And the people of Israel had never been a people until it was in Abraham. The nation of Israel had never been a nation or a people until there was an Abraham. A Jew who knows what his Jewishness is knows that the beginning of his nation, the beginning of his people, his his genesis, if you will, is in this person, Abraham, who was a nobody, who was married to a woman, could have no kids, and God called him, and this man left everything and followed and obeyed God. Israel had no identity as a people, no indication of any of God's promises. Any Israelite's hope in any promise, any Israelite's anticipation of any favor, any knowledge of any words of God were because God had called Abraham and commanded him and he obeyed him and was granted these promises. This is what it would mean to be a Jew, period. You don't have Abraham. You don't have this call. You don't have these promises. You don't have any Jewish identity. You don't have any hope or, or, or claim to God and his promises. None of that exists without Abraham. I think this is amazing. It's just amazing. Abraham becomes the father of the nation. He also becomes the path and and. Hopefully you'll understand what I mean. He becomes the the way by which the mind and hope of a Jew can anticipate favor from God. He is a path of hoping in God's promise. 
That is the thing that was said to Abraham. The promise and the offer of protection and blessing and peace is for them through what God told Abraham. He has become the source of their understanding of promises made to them. Look with me now at Genesis 17. So we're in 12 there, and we read those lines there in Genesis 12. Turn with me now to Genesis 17, and we're going to read verses 1 to 4 here also. This is many, many years later. Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. What did God ask him to do? This is what's called a unilateral covenant. In other words, God says, here's what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. Those are the terms of the covenant. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Does that sound like a contract to you? Most contracts require you giving the money, you providing the service, and the other person providing their end of the contract. What are the terms of the covenant for Abram? Hear. Hear it. Hear it. Hear hear, hear the terms of the promise. Listen to what I'm saying to you. Verse 2, I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him. What does a man say? When God reveals his promise to him. He says nothing. He falls on his face in awe and in worship. He says nothing. Isn't it amazing? It's glorious. He falls on his face. God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. We could look at more of that, but we're not going to. That's not a different covenant. This is still what is called the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, we read about the Abrahamic covenant. This is the same covenant given a little bit more detail as far as what it is that God is going to be doing. Romans chapter 4 points points the man who is looking to God for an understanding of how is it I have the righteousness required for eternal life. How do I come to possess the righteousness that I must have for eternal life? And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is your righteousness. The Lord Jesus is your righteousness. We're pointing to... Abraham as an example of a person who knew what it meant to believe with a kind of belief that turns to eternal life. 
Faith that saves has an object. Faith must understand and know who the promiser is. You must know what the nature of the promise is. The one who has believing faith knows the person making the promise, knows the power and the authority of making the promise. So faith has an object. Faith is directed to one who is making the statements and making the promises. And faith hears and understands the path that is now presented before it. Faith is asked to believe a certain thing and then as Abram was asked, leave. Leave all of your old everything. Go after me. Go to where I'm going to show you. Faith has a path. How does the Spirit teach you and I gospel faith using Abraham as an example of someone who has justifying faith? Romans 4, 1 and 2 sets the stage saying, What should we say? Abraham our father is found according to the flesh. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What did Abraham discover according to the flesh? He, he did not discover justification by works, by the law of works. He did not find that he was approved and savable by works, by his own attainments of righteousness. Abraham's justification was based on who he believed. Abraham knew who the one was who was speaking to him and the power he had to do what he was told to do. This faith in God, Abraham hearing God speak to him, directing him to do certain things in this case, moved him to both hear and do what God had asked him to do. What is Abraham's justifying faith? It is hearing the instructions of the God, making the revelation of the covenant known to him, and him pursuing God where God has commanded him to go. Abram wasn't known for his righteousness according to the deeds of the law. Abraham is actually known for his hearing and believing God. Why, why is Abram so famous in terms of being someone who has been justified by faith? Because he heard God and he believed God when God spoke to him. You see, the gospel says, the gospel says that saving faith hears God speak the terms of the covenant and he believes. He believes in the power of God to keep the promises that God has made. He follows God because he knows that God is the one who is revealing the path of faith before him. Romans 4.3 says, what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Look at Genesis 15. Now this is, we looked at 12 already, we looked at 17. 15 is the third mention of the same covenant in the Old Testament with Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 1. 
After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? He still doesn't have a child. He knows he's been made these promises, and he just cannot figure out how is this going to be? How is this possible? I go childless. The heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, which means he does have a a legal heir, but not an heir by Sarah. Then Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven. Count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Abram is given this reaffirmation of the covenant in varying details as it goes from chapter 12 to chapter 15 to chapter 17. There is the, when when, when Paul is telling us how it is that, that your faith is credited to you as righteousness is pulled out of this quote we read in Genesis chapter 15. He had no material way of understanding or even believing how it is he was going to have an heir. He was told he would have an heir. He was given these glorious promises. And then what did Abraham do? He believed. He believed God's promise. And this was credited to him for righteousness. Now, when we bring this into the realm of the gospel, when we bring this into your day, your life, your knowledge of God, you've heard the preaching of Christ. You know some of the preaching of Christ. You know much of the preaching of Christ. You've read the New Testament all the way through, I would imagine. You've read the gospels multiple times. The Lord Jesus said, leave your sin." He said, follow God. Is not sinning why he would save you? No. Is believing him how you will receive his righteousness? Yes. Believing him is is hearing his command and knowing who he is. You, you, You do what he says. You love to do what he says. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of the family of God. The kingdom of heaven is this kingdom of people who have heard God's call on their hearts and on their lives. They heard what he said. They want to walk with him. They go with him. Look at Matthew 12 and ask yourself, who do you believe? You see, the the one who has heard God and responded to his call is walking down the same path of faith. Matthew chapter 12, verse 47. A person says to the Lord Jesus, it says, Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my brother and who are, are my brothers? 
And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. There is a relationship between what somebody believes and what they do. The, the critical thing in understanding justification by faith is, is you can't justify you. It is a forensic legal thing. You're guilty of sin. You're guilty in sin. What justifies a man? His faith in Christ. Christ is our justification. Does this mean you take the law and throw it in the garbage can? Is God's morals, is God's kingdom standards now in the trash can? No, but they can't justify you. They won't justify you. Would you sin this afternoon? Yes. Does that unsave you? No. A person who is trusting Christ for their righteousness knows who their righteousness is. We know why we would have forgiveness in the gospel. We, we trust in the power and in the word of God. Believe and you shall be saved. When you sin, believe and confess your sin and you are forgiven. Man is not justified by his deeds. Man is not justified by his works. Abraham helps us understand saving faith. It means hearing and believing and doing the consequences of your believing. Why was Abraham given greatness? Why did God glorify him? Why did God give him those promises? He simply chose to bless Abraham. He simply chose to give Abraham the revelation of his covenant promises to him and to those who would believe like him in the ages to come. Why? Because he chose to bless them and to save them. Some will believe. Some will believe. And like Abraham, they will, they will leave their old life. They will pursue God in a path of faith until the end of the age. Why will they be called righteous? Because of the righteousness of Christ. Why will they say no to the world and yes to the Lord? Because they believe Him. They, they love Him. They're of His people. The relationship between faith and works is actually sort of easy to understand when you understand this. When we know who God and His authority is, when we, we know the preciousness of His promises, we walk in His ways because we love Him, because we believe Him. We don't do this to justify ourselves. The righteousness of Christ is transferred to you who have put your trust in Christ. Even when you sin this afternoon, if you sin this afternoon. Our merits don't save us. Is your, is your life a picture of the life of Abraham? Because this is what Paul is showing here at the beginning of, of Romans chapter 4. Are you a person who has heard the promises of God? You've heard the call of God on your life and you have said, I'm just going to go and do what he has said. I'm going to receive the promises that he has promised by virtue of his own authority and power. I'm going to go where he tells me to go. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. And I'm going to receive the glorious promises of his righteousness, 
of his rich blessings and care, I'm going to receive those because he has chosen to give these to me in Christ. The gospel asks you to leave your sin. The gospel asks you to put your trust, all of your trust and hope in Christ for your righteousness. And we go and we follow the Lord Jesus in faith as Abraham wandered through the last of his years, believing God with his belief being counted to him as his righteousness. So I hope you'll take an opportunity this afternoon to thank the Lord for the righteousness he has given to us in the Son. Righteousness that you need for salvation has been perfectly, perfectly granted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been given a glorious, rich, rich inheritance in the Lord Jesus Let's take a minute and thank the Lord and pray together. Oh, great God, I thank you for things I've been able to learn about Abraham this week. Lord, what a wonderful picture of a man who who heard the, the wonderful terms of your promises and, and he simply believed. Oh God, help us to fix our hope on you, the great God of of salvation, the great God of covenant promises, Lord. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. If you'd like to join us for lunch this afternoon, we'll be having lunch, and uh, then we'll be having another hour, hour and a little bit on uh, some some good studies this afternoon. Okay, hope you'll join us.